University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, last Sunday, while we were gathering online for some like interest activities, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, an incident occurred. There was a disagreement between a 29-year-old Jacob Blake and police officers. In a matter of minutes, Jacob was on the ground after being shot seven times by the officers. In the ensuing days, protests erupted in Kenosha, and on Tuesday evening, a 17-year-old walked into the protest and shot multiple people with an assault rifle, killing two and wounding another. Now, you've heard all week the political response to this. You've heard the police response to this. You've heard the news response to this. And depending on your political spectrum, you've probably formulated your opinion on this matter, much like you did for the George Floyd incident in May. But what about Jesus? How does Jesus see such matters? For this, I want you to take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25. We're in our kingdom series. We're looking at the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke and seeing through story how Jesus is turning a backward world in the right direction. And our parable this morning is quite possibly the most famous story of Jesus. In fact, you probably don't even have to open your Bibles to read it because you know the story by heart. Everyone knows it. And the real question is, does this parable, this most familiar parable, shape our way of thinking and living when it comes to its modern-day equivalents? The scripture reads this way. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. An expert in the law, you can call this guy a lawyer. This guy would have been an expert in the law of Moses, what we call the Ten Commandments, and the 600-plus laws created by men to enforce those Ten Commandments. And the lawyer asked Jesus a very loaded and intentionally provocative question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy wants to know what he must do to obtain life everlasting. The question that transpires is is a question of eternal existence. Might I add that the actual literal translation of everlasting life is life to the full. So it's a pretty serious question and certainly a very serious response from Jesus in verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. See, I love how Jesus responds to a question with a question. That would be so frustrating because how often Jesus does that in the Gospels. In reality, Jesus is asking this man not only to regurgitate what the law says, but to give his own opinion on what matters the most. And I just picture this lawyer puffing out his chest because he knew the right answer. 
Well, the law says, love God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. What a pristinely perfect answer. And Jesus' response, bingo, you got it, buddy. Go do this and you will live. Look at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? This guy starts to feel really uncomfortable, and maybe even a little showed up. He wants to make sure that he looks better, and in the last-ditch effort to thwart Jesus, he asked Jesus emphatically, who is my neighbor? What a great question. And in reply, Jesus says in verse 30, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Jesus always tells the best stories. And this story is so loaded with cultural and political and religious significance. Let's dig a little deeper into our understanding of the context of the story. Let's talk about this road and the equivalent of this moron. You see, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a real place that Jesus' audience would have immediately connected with. Jesus, in fact, had traveled this road when he was a young boy going to Jerusalem. We read that passage when he was 12 years old and stuck it out in the temple for a couple days. This road to his audience would have been well-known, and everyone would have known that you never would travel this road alone. You would have traveled with a group of people. So essentially, Jesus said that this complete idiot travels down this road alone from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's robbed, he's beaten, he's stripped, and he's left for dead. This man is a bloody heap of humanity dying on the side of the road. Now, the story takes on a religious overtone when a priest steps into the scene. A priest would have been a religious leader who would have led a local congregation and would have also been responsible for leading people in worship and making sacrifices on behalf of the people so a priest was a, a highly regarded religious leader. And this highly regarded religious figure walks by a man who has been robbed and left for dead. He sees the man and crosses to the other side, leaving the man in his desolate condition. Now, religiously, he had an obligation to his people not to contaminate himself with human blood and thereby making himself ritualistically impure, which would have made him essentially not able to lead worship and offer sacrifices for several days. So he passes by this man. And then it says a Levite enters into the scene. Now, a Levite would have been an assistant to the priest, a teacher of the law. This man would have been a person who was training up to become a priest. He, too, would assist with sacrifices in the temple. He sees the man and, for the same reasons, passes by on the other side. A few years back, a video went viral. It was of this little girl in China being hit by a car. And in the video, you very clearly see the man driving the car get out, see that he hit this child who still remains between the front and the rear tire, get back in the car, driving over her and moving on. 
What's equally disturbing is that 18 people walked past this young child, seeing her lie in the streets. Moments later, another car runs over her. And then you see the mother come in, scoop up her child, who hours later is dead. See, the reality of this story is something that rocks the very core of our existence. Are we a people of compassion or indifference? And if we consider ourselves to be a people of compassion, I guess the challenge we have to ask ourselves is, is there a limit to our compassion? What is the context that our compassion stops? Does our faith or our so-called religiosity prevent us from helping others? What about our political persuasion that oftentimes defines our religiosity? Does that prevent us from helping others? This is the battle of the priest and the Levite, compassion versus the law. These two guys were experts in the law. They were experts even in the law that says, love your neighbor, yet they chose the law that allowed them to, to be ritualistically pure and clean. They chose to leave this man for dead. Obedient to the law, they chose the law that was more important in their mind. And Jesus is engaging in this conversation with this lawyer in this frustrating tale. And, and the law of Jesus' day would have fully exonerated and glorified the bypassing of the priest and the Levi on the grounds of them avoiding defilement. Law and compassion do not sit easily together. In fact, nine times out of ten, law seems to, to quail love. Laws help us justify our actions and our inability to act. And as we see in the case of these two religious leaders, the law justified their overwhelming lack of compassion. You see, the poor man lying on the road was robbed twice. He was first robbed and taken of his goods and beaten and then at the hands of the Levites and the priest, he was robbed a second time. They robbed him of compassionate justice. Along the stretch of the Rio Grande, there's the Texas-Mexico border. And here's where many people try to make the difficult journey of illegally immigrating into America. It's a desolate place where hundreds of people lose their lives every single year from the strain of the elements, carrying nothing with them but hope and a prayer for a better life. And here is where some pastors, knowing that people are crossing, will leave water, thousands of bottles of water, to provide relief to those in need. It's not a political statement. It's a statement of human compassion. Yet here is also where Border Patrol will find the water and pour it out. You see, placing religious purity over helping a person who was perhaps still alive is gross hard-heartedness and selfishness. And walking to the other side displays a deliberate, I don't want to know attitude. And the less they saw this man's condition, the less they would feel obligated to help this man. And after all, if he's just dead, then they're no longer obligated to his life. Our modern-day equivalent of this attitude is, I don't want to get involved 
or that's illegal. I wonder if we can put our finger on such a crime in our day. I wonder if we can open our minds to see that the acts committed and the things left undone in the name of religious purity or political persuasion. As author and speaker Tony Campolo wrote, the God revealed in Jesus Christ is far too generous. He gives all his love for others and expects us to do the same. Such a God is too demanding for most Christians. They want one that only requires a tithe. They sing about total self-giving, but at the end of the day, they really want to sing, one-tenth to Jesus I surrender, one-tenth to him I gladly give. I surrender one-tenth. I surrender one-tenth. See, ultimately, we really want a God who, who affirms our social norms. And what makes Jesus' parable so extraordinary is that it transcends all time and cultures and politics and religious creeds. You cannot avoid Jesus' continued rebuke of the religious and political self-righteousness of his day. But the easy thing is to do is to fall into the trap of being so focused on the religious leaders that we forget that there is another part of the story. And it says this in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. See, the focus of this story is on the Samaritan. With the entrance of a Samaritan into the story, Jesus' story just took on major political, religious, and social tones. And if you recall from your biblical knowledge, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. In the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were idolatrous half-breeds. To the Jews, Samaritans had abandoned the God of Israel and intermarried with the surrounding pagan people. No good Jew would associate with a Samaritan, but Jesus did. In fact, many have made the argument that the first evangelist we see in the Bible, in the Gospels, is the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus commissions to go preach the gospel of new life. So, to the Jews who are listening to this story, they would stumble because here is a, a Samaritan man who sees a Jewish man lying half dead in the ditch. Now, the Samaritan could have and had every justification to not only look past this man, but maybe to even finish the job that was started. How long had his people suffered and been discriminated against by the Jews? But it's an act of overwhelming compassion that the Samaritan saw the man and took pity on him. Luke uses the word splognon, my favorite Greek word. It's used to describe what he's feeling and experiencing, this emotion. The literal translation is, from the bowels. So it says, when the Samaritan saw him and took pity on him, and then he had a compassion that came from the very core 
of his existence. And the Samaritan had compassion for this dying man. Jesus says that he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine, cleaning them. He, he put him on his own donkey. He brought to an inn. He, he didn't just drop him off at the door and leave him there, but he made sure that everything that this man needed was taken care of. By the nature of, of law and social dissension, this Samaritan could have done whatever he wanted to to this man, abandoning him, but he chose the compassion over law. It's an outrageous story that an untouchable Samaritan would be the one who touches the beaten up man on the side of the road. And as we wrestle with this story in our modern context, we're faced with several difficult questions. What does this teach us? Through this parable, Jesus is able to teach us that there is a greater law. There is a law that undermines our social laws. There is a law that tears down political laws. There is a law that bulldozes over our religious laws. It's the law of compassion. It's a law that was not created by man, but created by a God who is defined as love. We see that in 1 John. And Jesus is looking at this lawyer in the eyes, and he's saying that the law of compassion outmaneuvers your religious and social and political laws every single time. Do you really want to know that God, do you want to know that you truly love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul? Jesus is asking. Then show it by the way that you have compassion for others, even for those that are most difficult, even when it might require you to break your religious laws. Love. See, love defined by the scriptures is unconditional. Unconditional means that you do not expect a person to change in order for you to love them. You love them as they are. Love is what transforms lives. Not laws or coercion to try to change people, but the love of God. Scripture says that love must be sincere, and true compassion is not something that we just express through words, but it's expressed when we roll up our sleeves and get to work. Sincere love, it takes time to listen, uses all of its resources to help mend the wounds of others. Love has no limitations. There is no limit of time or effort that can hold back love. And love must be willing to go through difficulties and still love the other person on the other side. This is the kind of love that God has for us. This is the kind of love we see born through the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of love that sustains us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus calls us to go beyond easy love, to have love for people, even those that are hard and uncomfortable and taboo and illegal to love. And when we love, we help shape others to understand and feel the presence of God. So what does this teach us also about eternal life? This whole parable was set up in the first place by the question of the lawyer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus shows this man that it's not just about believing in God, but it's about living out our belief by the way that we truly follow the way of Jesus in our lives. Are we starting to see that there is a deep complexity in Jesus' parable. 
are we starting to see that Jesus is maybe a threat to our way of thinking and living? Are we starting to see that Jesus desires to tear down all of our religious and social and political laws? Are we starting to see that Jesus is inviting us into a new way of being human? And it says this in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As if it wasn't blatantly obvious, Jesus wants to make sure this man understands the deep dynamics of the story. So we ask him one final question. What do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the robbers? And the lawyer knows the answer. The one who had mercy on him. If we were to retell this parable in our modern context, it might go something like this. There was a man walking from Baker to Baton Rouge when he was attacked by robbers. They took his wallet and his shoes and beat him to an inch of his life and ran away. A woman happens to be driving down the same road when she sees the man, but she's late for her yoga class, so she drives right on by. Soon another man driving down the same road, but he's not comfortable with this part of town, so he keeps on going. Then an undocumented Mexican driving in a state where on a vaguely defined grounds of suspicion, he can be arrested, locked up for profit, and deported without even a hearing, sees this man lying bloody on the road. He takes pity on him. He pulls over and helps the man. And he doesn't just help the man, but he puts his own security and priorities at risk. Who is my neighbor? The answer to that question says much about the priorities we place on loving people who are different from us. Hidden behind Jesus' parable is an intense spotlight aimed right on our most serious blind spots. Race economic status, political division, or social taboos. Who is my neighbor? You see, that is a brilliantly complex parable from Jesus because depending on who you are, how you were raised, where you lived, your cultural, religious, and political worldview, the answer to that question can be quite complicated. If you were to give a modern-day retelling of this parable, who would you substitute with the Samaritan? What's their race, their ethnicity, their sexuality, their gender, their political leaning, their religious affiliation, their age, or their economic status? You see, when we truly begin to ask the question, who is my neighbor, the overwhelming reality of our neighbor's identity comes crashing in before us. And as God begins to identify our neighbors, you and I are forced to decide on whether or not we are on board with the way of Jesus, the way of compassion over the way of the law. And for many who follow Jesus, the reaction is is to intentionally put up blinders that prevent them from seeing their neighbor and the needs around them. Like the Levite or the priest will just pass by on the other side of the road so I don't see the man lying in a puddle of his own blood. 
You see, Jesus is dangerous. He's dangerous to our comfortability. He's dangerous to our political and social and our religious views. Jesus was and is challenging the status quo. And yet Jesus has transformed you with his love. God has created each of us with an immeasurable capacity for compassion. But will we live into the way of Jesus? Will we live into the way that we are made by God? I began our conversation talking about an incident with the police officer shooting of Jacob Blake. Now more than ever, it's obvious to us who our neighbor is. Whether it be the incident of Jacob Blake or George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, there's something going on in America's road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I think this parable is forcing us to answer the question, what are we going to do about it? NPR released a poll this last week that showed some staggering facts. It found that since George Floyd's murder in May, only 30% of white Americans have personally taken action to better understand the issues of race in America. 61% of those polled said they have done nothing to better understand racial issues. The facts speak for themselves. Yet for the 65% of Americans that claim to be Christians, we are called to love our neighbor. And loving our neighbor means that we listen to our neighbor. We care for our neighbor. We seek out the best interest for our neighbor. But the problem is, and I know this isn't going to be popular, too many white Americans have made sure that their little neighbor isn't black. And despite our best efforts to isolate ourselves from people different from us, Jesus is calling us to do and to live into the same standards of the Great Commission. And the reason that so many people are leaving the church today as we talk about it, it's not because people are leaving faith, they don't lack a faith in God, but they are disillusioned with the church's disconnect with the way of Jesus. You see, we cannot claim to follow Jesus of the good Samaritan if we stay silent and apathetic. Dr. King put it this way. We are called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside. But one day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed. True compassion is more than flinging a coin at a beggar. It comes to see that the system that produces beggars needs to be changed. We are called to be the good Samaritans. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to ask, maybe the whole road from Jericho needs to be repaved. Jesus closes this conversation with a simple and resolute statement. Go and do likewise.